Number One of The Heart of a Mystery by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heart of a Mystery by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Number One Mademoiselle Delacourt. Part One Death had summoned my friend Maurice Escott and I was called to Paris at a moment's notice. I was thirty years of age, and had led up to that date a lazy and, in many respects, a good-for-nothing existence. My name was Rupert Penace. I came of an old family, and had plenty of money for my needs. It was on the 5th of February, 1898, that I received the telegram, and little did I guess, as I opened it, that with one leap I was to spring into a totally new life. I, who had not the slightest experience of danger, whose blood had never been quickened by a single heartbeat into undue excitement, was henceforth to be the victim of a strange mystery. I was to know tragedy, pain, and the extreme of peril. I was standing in the bay window of my luxurious sitting-room in Half Moon Street when my servant brought me a telegram on a salver. I tore it open. It ran as follows. Dying come at once, Escott. I had known Escott all my days. I was fond of him. He was a first-rate fellow in every sense of the word, handsome to look at, brave, and in all his actions straight as a die. Where I was lacking in energy, he was full of go and spirit. Nevertheless, friends that we were, there was a secret in connection with his life which I had never been able to discover. He was, I knew, a very busy man, but in what sort of manner he occupied his time, or in what way he earned his income, for he had no private means, was a secret he had never divulged. He was strangely, remarkably sensitive on the point, and, knowing that such was the case, I had long ceased to worry him. Such a telegram was immediately to be obeyed. I took the night mail to Paris, and early the following morning drove up in hot haste to Escott's apartments in the Rue de Rivoli. The door was opened by my friend's valet, who knew me well. "'How is your master, Valentine?' I asked. The man shook his head. "'I am sorry to say he is very bad, sir. The doctor does not give the slightest hope. I am glad, Mr. Finesse, that you are in time.' "'Pray let the nurse know that I have arrived,' was my next remark. The man ushered me into a sitting-room. A moment later a tall young woman, dressed as a nurse, came in. "'You are in time, Mr. Finesse.' Mr. Escott has been asking for you at intervals all night. He is very ill, but your presence will comfort him. What is the matter? I asked. The patient is in the last stage of double pneumonia. The doctor, Professor Thesiger, who is attending him and who is an Englishman, gave up all hope a few hours ago. Will you follow me, sir? The nurse led the way into a darkened room. As soon as I got accustomed to the dim light, I looked on the face of my friend and knew that both doctor and nurse were right. Escott was breathing with extreme difficulty, and there was a dusky hue under his eyes and round his lips. When I first bent over him, his eyes were shut, but the next instant he opened them with a restless movement, saw me, and a smile lit up his face. "'Thank God, Rupert, you have come,' he said. "'I must speak to you at once, and alone. I have not a moment to lose. Please leave us, nurse.' The woman withdrew from the room. When the door had closed behind her, Escott raised himself with some difficulty in bed. A flicker of strength came into his voice, 
and his eyes grew bright. "'I have come to the end, old man,' he said. "'I am within a few moments of solving the great secret. Do not waste time condoling with me. There is something I must tell you quickly. You have often wondered what my life has been. I never told you, but it is necessary to tell you now. I am one of the agents of the British Secret Service.' I listened to these words in astonishment. I had always heard of the Secret Service, and knew well that to belong to it meant danger and difficulty. "'You may thank heaven that up to the present you have known nothing of what I have lived through,' continued Escott. "'Men in my profession have to obtain their strange knowledge at fearful risks. Yes, my life has been one of danger. And now, Phineas, I am about to transfer that danger to you. You must not shrink nor hesitate.' There is no course in honor open to you but to accept the charge which I am about to confide in you. When you know my secret, you too will be at the mercy of men without scruple and without conscience. But I put this burden on you, Phineas, because you are an Englishman, and for the sake of our country. His voice sank to a whisper. I gave him a spoonful of restorative which stood near. It revived him, and he continued, his words coming out now in gasps. You will do what I want, Phineas? Yes, I replied. I spoke with earnestness, and my words comforted him. I knew I was right in appealing to you, he said. Now, listen. A fortnight ago, it was my misfortune to obtain possession of a political secret of such gravity that if even a suspicion of its existence were breathed, it would cause a European crisis. There is only one who knows that I know this secret." That man is a certain Monsieur Laroque, a French chemist, a man of remarkable learning and power. He is altogether my friend in this matter. Immediately, after my death, you must go to my cabinet in my sitting-room. You will find a letter there addressed to him. Take it to him, and act in concert with him over this grave matter. But what is the secret? I asked. Listen, I was present but unknown a fortnight back at a secret conference between the President of the French Republic and the agent of the Tsar of Russia. The substance of what I heard was that in the event of war between England and the Transvaal, Russia and France would, but come closer. No, do not write anything, for heaven's sake. It would not be safe. Listen, and do not forget. There are three generals of the French army, General Romville, General— There was a sudden movement at the door, a few words of entreaty and expostulation fell on our ears, and the next instant a tall girl, with evidences of great excitement on her face, burst into the room. The name of General Romville must have fallen on her ears. She rushed to the bedside, and the horror on her face was painful to witness. "'I am in time,' she said. "'Send him away, Maurice, and tell me what you want. Tell me what has burdened your last moments.' She fell on her knees by the dying man's side, and buried her face in her hands. Escott gave her a glance of despair. Then he looked at me, and then a sudden change came over his face. His lips made an effort to speak, but no words were audible. His breath came in hurried gasps, and then stopped. He was dead. "'You have killed him,' I said, turning to the girl and speaking in hot anger. "'Why did you force yourself into the room? You do not know what you have done.' "'I know perfectly well,' she replied. She had risen to her feet. Her face was as white as the white face of my dead friend. I meant to be with him at the very end, she said. I had the right. I stared at her in consternation. He was telling you something important when I entered the room, she continued. 
It was a secret. Now listen. That secret was meant for me. I know what it was about, for I caught the words, General Romville. Will you tell it to me now? For it is my right to know. Her words were interrupted by the nurse who entered the room. Mr. Escott is dead, I said, turning to the woman. The entrance of this young lady was the final shock. You had no right to admit her. I told Mademoiselle what the consequences would be, said the nurse. She went to the sitting-room first. What were you doing, Mademoiselle? How did you come by the key of my master's cabinet? I found it on the floor. Give it to me, I said eagerly. The nurse handed it to me without a word. As she did so, Mademoiselle regarded her with grave, wide-open eyes. There was a half-despairing, half-vindictive expression on her face. Notwithstanding the fact that I had just lost my dearest friend, it was the sort of look to haunt a man, to fill him with uneasiness. I left the room where Escott lay dead and went straight to his sitting-room. The first thing I did was to walk to the cabinet and open it. I meant to take out the letter which he had told me I should find there, the letter addressed to Monsieur Laroque. Search as I would, I could not see it anywhere. I opened drawer after drawer. Had the strange girl, whose name I did not even know, taken it? This thought had scarcely come to me before the door was opened and she came in. Mr. Finesse, she said, I have come to ask your pardon. Please forgive me if I spoke with intemperance. The fact is, I was very much upset at seeing you in the room with Maurice Escott. I wanted to be alone with him during his last moments. I had my reason. Whatever that reason was, mademoiselle, I replied, I still very deeply regret your having burst into the room in the intemperate way you did. But, however much we may deplore it, we cannot call the dead back to life. Now I have a question to ask you. The nurse said she found the key of this cabinet on the floor. She further said that you had been in the room. Did you open the cabinet and take from thence a letter? If you did, please return it to me immediately. It was entrusted to me by my friend, and was addressed to a man he had business connections with. I took no letter, she answered haughtily. What do you take me for? You are a stranger to me, I answered. Your actions since you came into this house have astonished me. Forgive me if I am over-suspicious. You had better know at once who I am, she replied. My name is Francesca Delacorte. My father, who is dead, was a Frenchman, but my mother was English. I have known Mr. Escott for a long time. I can scarcely realize that he is dead. Whatever secret he told you was meant for me. May I share the confidence which he gave you on his deathbed? I have nothing whatever to tell you, I answered. I should be glad if you would leave me now, for I am upset and shocked. I will certainly go, she replied. As to your being shocked, if you know what I think you know, you have reason for your emotion. She turned, walked to the door, went out, and closed it behind her. I was alone, and I tried to collect my troubled thoughts. Escott had died without having told me his secret. The letter which he had written to Monsieur Laroque could not be found. Mademoiselle Delacorte seemed to be mixed up in the affair. I distrusted her. I felt certain that, although she denied it, she had really stolen the letter which was addressed to Monsieur Laroque. What that letter contained, God only knew. It was terrible to feel that my poor friend's most dangerous secret might have got into wrong hands. An agent of the British Secret Service is a man scarcely to be envied. He becomes acquainted with matters which touch big interests, often affecting the welfare of nations. 
Escott declared that his was a most dangerous secret. He was about to tell it to me when death, caused by Mademoiselle Delacourt's abrupt entrance, prevented him. I was musing on these thoughts when the doctor arrived. He was an Englishman with a clever face of about forty years of age. I told him that his patient was dead. I expected it, was his answer. Did you arrive in time, Mr. Finace? Yes and no, was my answer. He sent me a wire, as perhaps you know. He had something to confide in me, but died before his confidence was complete. Indeed, how sad. Where are you staying? I was going to the Continental. I must return to London immediately after the funeral. Pray, make my house your home, Mr. Finace. I have apartments in the Rue Saint-Honoré. Bring your things, for we shall be quite quiet. After a moment's thought I decided to accept this invitation. I went, therefore, that afternoon to Thesiker's rooms, and in the evening the doctor and I dined together. During the meal I asked him a few questions with regard to my dead friend. "'Did you know Escott well? Did you see much of him?' was my first query. "'A good deal,' replied Dr. Thesiker. "'He was always a rather reserved sort of fellow. But he often came over here to smoke and have a chat.' During the last few weeks he seemed to be seriously troubled, and to have something weighing on his mind. Indeed. Yes, and I think that something lessened his chance of recovery. When I told him yesterday that his illness was likely to take a serious turn, he immediately asked me to wire for you. I am sorry you were not in time to receive his confidence. Alas, I was not. Thesiger gave me a keen glance. His eyes met mine. I saw a gleam of curiosity in them. "'There was a great deal of mystery about him, poor fellow,' he continued. "'He never even told me what his business was. Was he conscious at the end?' "'Yes,' I said slowly. "'And yet he did not relieve his mind?' "'He was prevented.' "'How?' "'A girl forced her way into the room.' "'Mr. Finace? A girl? What girl?' "'Mademoiselle Francesca Delacourt.' "'Ah, I know Mademoiselle Delacourt.' what do you mean? She rushed in uninvited. My friend was interrupted in an important confidence. Her entrance agitated him. He passed away a moment later. Thesiger's face looked grave and stern. Do you know this young lady? I asked. Yes, I think everyone does. She is a beautiful and clever woman. Her father belonged to one of the best old French families. She goes everywhere. Her beauty and position give her the entree wherever she wills. "'Do you like her, doctor?' "'Yes,' he replied. But I noted a certain reserve in his tone. "'You mean no, Dr. Thesiger,' I said boldly. "'You may take my answer, then, to mean both yes and no,' was his reply. "'Please tell me exactly what you know about her.' "'I should advise you, Finace, to have nothing to do with her. She is said to have the power of arousing keen interest in most men to whom she accords her friendship.' It is rumored that she has considerable political influence, and that her greatest friends belong to the diplomatic corps. The diplomatic corps, I replied. Yes. I sat silent, but a thrill of mingled pain and fear had run through me. Could Mademoiselle really know Escott's secret? Had she interrupted his confidence on purpose? At that moment a servant entered with a card on a salver. Thesiger glanced at it, and then— with a curious smile on his face, handed it to me. It bore the name of Mademoiselle Francesca Delacourt. This is curious, I said. I will go and see what she wants, said the doctor. 
If she should have learnt that you are here, Phineas, and asks to see you, what shall I say? I will see her, I replied. Thesiger was absent a minute or two. His face looked grave when he returned. Mademoiselle has managed to trace you here, he said. With what motive I am unable to say. She wishes to see you immediately. Will you give her an interview? You are, of course, at liberty to refuse. I will see her, I said. If you will take my advice, Phineas, you will be careful. I shall be very careful, I answered. End of number one, part one.